This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Today, I fell in love with the act of filling my water jug as if it was a caring watershed. And I wanted to put every joy into cutting vegetables because they nourish me. To fold all of my affection into my clothes because they caress me. To infuse endless delight in tidying the house because it wants to indulge me. Now I am delirious as if I found the lost city of gold after stumbling around in the jungle all my life. I am not really dancing, but the moves are audible. On the surface, it is just one of those sly, starry-eyed smiles. If you ask me what I am doing, that makes me so happy, I will tell you. I finally met someone to love. This poem is called I Met Someone by Nick LaForce. Valeria Tellis interviews Nick on self-love, the archetypal journey, transformational poetry, and other related topics. Nick LaForce, the transformational poet, has over 35 years of experience in the field of human communication and development. He holds an undergraduate degree in psychology and social welfare and a graduate degree in rehabilitation administration. He is a certified trainer in neuro-linguistic programming and Ericksonian hypnotherapy and is an ICF certified coach, PCC. He is also board certified as an examiner for the American Council of Hypnotist Examiners. Nick is president of Inner Works, established in 1992, a coaching and training company located in Northern California, providing executive coaching services to businesses, as well as personal coaching services to individuals. Nick has designed and delivered certified NLP, hypnotherapy, and coaching training programs internationally, including NLP Train the Trainer programs and platform skills training. He is particularly known for his language skills and elegant use of poetry to help people find their own voice, reclaim their soul, and walk a path with heart. Nick is author of several books, I Owe You, You Owe Me, 1998, 2007, 2017, a book on overcoming emotional debts and building abundant relationships, Co-Creation, How to Collaborate for Results, 2009, a mini-book on the power of perceptual positions to create incredible collaboration, and co-authored others. Nick has also authored seven books of poetry, Heaven in Our Hearts, 2012, Endless Horizon, 2013, Divine Whispering, 2014, and others. He incorporates poetry into his transformational work as a teacher, coach, and consultant 
Here is the interview with Nick LaForce. In your own words, who is Nick LaForce? Well, that's a great question. You know, in a way, I can't really answer that question. And the reason I can't answer it is because I think all of my understanding of myself that's held in my conscious awareness is just a tiny part of who I am and the, you know, sort of the fullness of my expression. So, you know, I uh, like to say that we tend to have this goal of self-mastery. And I think it's a foolish goal. I think we should have self-mystery. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> kind of open ourselves up to, you know, the incredible possibilities of expression when we're not limiting ourselves to, you know, a predefined set of qualities and, uh, you know, roles and other things we use as identity tags. So sure. I, I guess that I guess that's my main answer to it. Um, uh, and you can ask like specific things of what I've done or others <laughs> if that would people to understand me. But that's I think that's my best answer to that question. I love that. Um, Before we begin the conversation about transformational poetry, archetypal journey and self love, I have a few questions for you, which I call warm up questions, as I mentioned before. The first one is, what is life? Ah, life is this flow of energy that's moving through us every second of every day you know to be alive to be aware is to have that force flowing through us i like to say that you know the the thing i want to put my faith in when i'm coaching people or i'm working with people or i'm teaching and training so i want to put my faith in the flame of life you know it's that that kind of force inside of us the same force that will crack concrete to push grass up from, you know, from beneath the surface that doesn't stop when, when things are thwarted. To me, that's what life is. Life is the rising force. You know, death is maybe a descending force or a ending or closure of things. Life is an opening of things. Yeah, it makes so much sense. If life was a poem, what title would you give to it? Beauty. Beauty. Wow. What inspires you to be a good person and to do good in the world, Nick? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question, to be a good person. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think that word good is a little bit too loaded or too weighty. Right. You know, I think for me, it's like, how can I be the best version of myself? Mm-hmm. And that best version of myself is going to be more fully expressive of all the aspects of me that I can bring to the world or I can use to deal with life situations. And I may not always do well. I mean, I think even when we're at our best, we're going to flub up and make make mistakes. And, you know, so I think if we aim for being a good person, Mm. there's a lot of great in that. And I don't want to deny it or diminish that. But I think that there's more to being the kind of person I want to be. Um, which would include that. It would include doing my best in life and trying to be, quote, a good person. Right. But also it's it's more than that. It's not limited by the, the connotations that go with the word good. Yeah, I like that. So you, you try to stay away from concepts of what good might mean, right? Yeah, or what, you know, I think concepts are useful for understanding things, but they never catch the whole of reality. And so for me, I want to always keep that door open. And it's easy to forget and kind of get caught up 
in our concepts and our ideas and then live limited according you know according to those ideas on the other hand you know you could say there's living a a principled life and acting according to principles which are concepts too so it's a double-edged sword you know like many things in life (laughs) (laughs) so true you know i think you I, i should tell you never ask a what a question unless you want to get ambiguity for the answer (laughs) oh no is that an advice a suggestion (laughs) yeah in fact i wrote a poem once about that it's like never ask a poet for advice (laughs) great i just made a note of that (laughs) what is the world's greatest need in your opinion uh that we fall in love with a planet and start treating it as a beloved Wow, falling in love. What is love to you? You know, it's philosophers and scientists <laughs> and you know, much better minds than mine have tried to answer that question. You know, you know for me, I think it's, it's some essence of maybe just care, I guess, is the basic word for it. It's, a, it's, it's that essence inside of us that wants to care for things. Mm-hmm. Being, you know, that wants to take care of right. things. But, you know, I think our lives are not our own. I am not, I do not own myself, and I do not own my life. You know, and um, I came into this world given this, granted this life, but I'm at, at most, I'm a caretaker of it. Wow. What an interesting way of um, defining love. Yeah, just a caretaker of life. Beautiful. Um, yeah. What, where, and who is God to you? Well, I'll tell you, that's been a little interesting dance for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was not raised religious. I don't have any particular religious affiliation. If I was anything, I'd probably be more Buddhist inclined. Yeah. Um, and I, I've always had some hesitancy about using, you know, the word God or the name God to go with whatever it is that's this, you know, great mystery, maybe as the Native Americans would say, this great being, uh, great sense of presence. I, you know, I don't know that I can, I can even begin to answer that question, but I will say this, um, you know, I, I've been writing poetry, very committed fashion for, you know, 25, 30 years now. And over the years, religious iconography, symbolism, and words and phrases have have started coming into my poetry. And at first I was resistant and reluctant and tried to find, you know, other, you know, synonyms or other ways of saying the same thing. But gradually I found that that to deny that is to deny some flow of wisdom flowing through me. And about a year ago, I wrote a poem, and in the poem came the phrase, the gospel of radiance. Mm. And when I got that phrase, I knew in that moment I had to open the floodgates. I had to stop monitoring or stop censoring this flow that includes the word God or includes whatever is this greater presence or greater being. And the end result of that was I compiled a, a set of poems that that have religious connection to them or spiritual connection to them, I should say, and uh, published that in a book that's called Gospel of Radiance, which was uh, um, the last book that I published um, before my Valentine's Day series, which are ebooks. books so, Yeah, so 
it's not one I can answer easily. Is is my reply to that? <laughs> I understand what do you what do you mean? Since you mentioned um, spirituality, religion, what is the difference between being spiritual and being religious? I think you can be religious and not be spiritual in in a kind of funny way, mm-hmm. and that is you can be religious in the sense that you go through all the motions that a religion requires of you. And if you're just going through the motions and you're not truly putting your heart into it or not truly really bringing yourself to that experience, or maybe even questioning and pondering the deeper meaning of those experiences, then I'd say you're, you're being religious, but not spiritual. And you can be spiritual, but not religious. In fact, the biggest, the, the fastest growing affiliation in America is called spiritual but not religious. Uh, The group of people that consider themselves spiritual but are not affiliated with any particular religion. Right. And I I consider myself to be among them. Spiritual to me just means that we're aware that we're not the whole thing. (laughs) Mm. We're nested in greater forces. And those greater forces, whether you consider them having a consciousness or a you know, an intelligence or not, they're moving us in our lives in ways that we can barely fathom. And, um, you know, like the whole cultural movement, and then there's the world movement, there's all kinds of things that are going on that are way beyond me. And I participate in those in some way, and they carry me in some way. That's like, I think, the fundamental basis of spirituality is recognizing that we're nested in greater forces. And then finding whatever relationship is appropriate to them, which for me, spiritual means having a relationship of reverence to the greater forces and recognizing the awesome power of those forces, maybe standing up against them sometimes because we need to stand up against the tide of some social movements or some activity and maybe surrendering ourselves completely to them. Wow, surrendering too, right. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the purpose of your life? You know, that's a, been a question I've, I've gone around and around on. And sometimes I think that there is no one single purpose except to live, you know, as best you can. You know, sort of, to me, I have a vision of creating a world in which we see and bring out the best in each other. And for me, that would be the closest thing to purpose is to do my part in creating that kind of world. But is that, you know, like purpose sometimes implies that there's some purpose that we were put here on the earth by, by God or by spirit or by some outside force, and we need to find and fulfill that purpose. So that's one definition that some people give for purpose. I don't know that that's true or not. I mean, I think we come into this world through some magic, amazing, you know, sort of almost astound, against astounding odds, and almost, in fact, definitely against astounding <laughs> odds. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know that we're tasked to do any particular thing. I wrote a book called The Work of Being Yourself, and perhaps that would be it, because we humans are, are among all the animals on the planet that I can understand or that I, I have some knowledge about. You know, we're the ones with the longest gestation, you know, sort of indoctrination period into society, you know, 12 to 18 years. And most of that is layering on all kinds of ideas and concepts for us to navigate the social realm primarily, the world of humans. And I think all of that layering also disconnects us from whatever might be called, quote, natural. So when I wrote the the work of being yourself, the idea behind it is that when people say just be yourself, it's a near impossible task. 
we really have to work mm. at being ourselves. We have to That's work right. at unlearning certain things so that we can find a core energy or a core movement inside of us that we could say is genuine. And I think the closest thing to that is when we step into those moments of flow in life. Wow, Nick, yeah. So my purpose, I think, would be, you know, to be in that flow when I can and to undo the things that interfere with that and to embrace the life that I'm living. Yeah. I love what you said about, uh, and it's so true, unlearning. Yeah. Most of the work we have to do on becoming ourselves, it's uh, a process of unlearning. So true. Mm -hmm. Yes. What inspired you to become a poet? And why do you call yourself the transformational poet? What inspired me to become a poet? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, I, I started writing poetry when I was very young. And I think it came out at that time as a way of expressing maybe my my emotional presence in the world, sort of people typically write poetry when they're either in love or they're suffering. Those are the two most common. True. And I think poetry has a language that bypasses our conscious mind and opens the door to a deeper way of experiencing and expressing. I, I think of poetry as the language of the soul. Mm. So what inspires me is this feeling I think of being touched by life you know I see something simple in the world like a, a mother that bends down and wipes the chocolate off of a little child's face you know with this kind of damping little damping movements and mm -hmm. smiling while she's doing it <laughs> laughing about that moment and, and you know I think that's a beautiful little moment in life um, and so for me it's it's being touched is the most precious experience in life and poetry is the best way I think to express that and then one last thing on that, I think for me, inspiration is, you know, a lot of people wonder about seeking or going out looking for inspiration. I, I think inspiration is hunting me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is great. <laughs> really great. You know, it's like, I have this muse that's relentless. <laughs> and, and even when I've given up on the muse, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I've had enough. Yeah, it's right. like, it says, sorry, I'm here, buddy. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, I could tell you a little story kind of about a moment yeah. that really for me was transformative around the whole writing of poetry. So over the years, in you know, the past 25, 30 years, I've been writing very actively putting some poetry out in the world. And it's been mixed, you know, it's had mixed reception in life. People typically like my poetry, but it's not, you know, I've not become famous. I'm certainly not famous as a poet. And, uh, and I would occasionally have these dark nights of the soul where I would put something, I'm not a marketer, by the way. So, mm, right. oh, wow. Tell me about <laughs> so you know, but I would, yeah, I, I would put something out in the world and I wouldn't get very much response to it. And a part of me would start to think, well, why am I doing this? Right. And I'd have these dark nights of the soul. I was in one of these dark nights of the soul, flying from uh, uh, Kuala Lumpur to Hong Kong. There was a movie on the plane called Shadows in the Sun. Harvey Keitel plays this aging author who hasn't written a book in 20 years. He's a best-selling author. And this editor from a publishing company is sent to get him to sign a contract to write a new book because they know just his name on the book is going to be a bestseller. The editor comes, and this uh, old author just does everything to humiliate and get rid of the editor while he's trying to get the author to sign this contract. And finally, the editor admits that he wants to write, too. And this strange relationship develops where the author starts mentoring the editor in writing mm -hmm. while the 
editors trying to get the author to commit to writing a book. They have one scene beautifully acted on the veranda of the author's home in Italy, overlooking this, you know, vineyard and the sun is setting and the author says to the editor, describe this sunset as if you were writing about it. Mm. And the editor fumbles over some words and the author says, is that all you've got? The editor, indignant, says back to the author, well, if you're so good, you do it. And this author starts reciting these beautiful lines about the sunset. And he starts to believe maybe, maybe he could write again. He lost his belief when his wife died. And now this, this moment, he believes maybe it's possible for him to write again. And he walks down and beautifully acted, no words at this point in time. He walks down the hallway to his typewriter, holds his hands hovering above the keys of the typewriter, and they're shaking. It's almost as if he believes he can, but he's not sure. And in that moment, I'm watching that. I felt this wellspring of tears come up on the airplane. And I had Mm -hmm. to hit the pause button (laughs) on the movie screen, jump up. Fortunately, the bathroom was open. I ran into the bathroom, locked the door, and I was bawling my eyes out. And the words that came out of my mouth was, I have to write. Mm -hmm. I have to write. Mm -hmm. It was for the sake of my soul. I knew at that moment... This was no longer a matter of my will and my choice. Wow. How amazing. I was called to do it. So in a way, I think I heard about it. Maybe I read somewhere. Maybe not sure. Uh, But what is the connection between writing and spirituality and the uh, unknown? Or if there is a realm of spirits, that's the form of art that they choose to uh, embody I don't think spirit is that particular. (laughs) I think any kind of creative act can do that. So for me, you know, writing is a channel that I open to a co-creation because it is a co-creation. I've honed my craft and worked at being a good writer over the years. But when I'm writing, I think my best writing comes when it's coming from a place where I'm not coming up with the words, at least not every one of them. And I think the same thing is true with artists who are painting or sculpting. You know, they, they, they may get a guidance, something inside, like Michelangelo could look at the stone and see, you know, the image, the thing he wanted to carve. He was just taking away the excess. I think that kind of thing wow. is how spirit communicates to us. It goes through us and gets expressed through creative work, most effectively and most vividly. So I think artists of all kinds are an absolute necessity for the human soul and for the human spirit. There are, you know, our remembrance of who we are. Yeah, yeah. I like that, remembrance of who we are, right? Um, You're using the word we are, uh, soul, spirit. Uh, I know you write about the heart, and um, there's another word that we are using here. Not yet, consciousness. But um, is there a difference between spirit, soul, and the heart? Ah, man. <laughs> you, you like to ask these great questions. Uh, is there a difference between spirit, soul, and the heart? Right. I, you know, I think there's, they may be like overlapping circles, you know. Um, I think the heart is the place where spirit and soul come together. Spirit, to me, is more airy and more heady and more kind of, um, almost more, are you, the word flighty comes to mind. It's and soul is more, it's, it's deeper, it's more anchored, it's more, to me, right. it's more, you know, it's closer to me. So soul is maybe my part of spirit that I express in this life. 
And spirit, it's greater. That's why it kind of has that flighty sense to it and heady sense to it. It's like it goes out and beyond, way beyond me and my life. Mm. And then heart, I think, is the heart is the organ. Interestingly enough, you know, the heart is positioned between the head, which is our strategic mind, you know, our ability to sort of figure things out and rationalize things and problem solve is the head and the gut, which is the place of our desire and our passion. Mm. And the heart is the arbiter between the two. And I think Mm. in the same way that, you know, the soul and spirit, the heart is the place where they converge. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that's a different answer. Well, I, I'm just making it up. I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I made Thank it you up for your it, honesty. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so going back your work, transformational poetry, what is it exactly? Well, I call myself the transformational poet because I use poetry and transformational work with people. So my teaching as a neurolinguistic practitioner, NLP teacher and trainer, hypnotherapy teacher trainer coaching you know teacher trainer and my work as a coach with individuals i will use poetry for many purposes but primarily because i think poetry and the way i write poetry and the poems i want to use in my classes are really about the struggle to divine our way through life about our struggle to to be human mm. and to bring our you know our ability to 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 grow beyond our weaknesses and our faults and our resentments and our anger and our bitterness and and to step into that larger space that can allow those things to be just like there can be weeds in a garden and sometimes those weeds in a garden are actually beneficial right. mm. rather than yeah. pulling them up getting rid of them and so for me it's how can i use poetry to open people up to embrace the fullness of themselves or to extend the reach of their heart into the world or to deepen their roots in life or to broaden their horizons so that more is possible for them. Mm. Wow, how wonderful, Nick. Really wonderful. You wrote something interesting. You said, the most important factor in living well is how we walk the landscape of our soul. What is to walk the landscape of our soul? Yeah, you know, as a poet, I'm always expressing things poetically. And sometimes metaphor captures more than we can explain logically or rationally. So my best description of that would be that as we're going through life, we're challenged or we face or we find in ourselves all kinds of you could say dilemmas or opportunities to make choices or times when we act in the world. And for me, those moments are when we're making or when we're determining how we're walking on this planet. So on a literal level, it would be how do we make the the choices we make in our life and how do we in honor in making those choices, honor ourselves and the world that we live in. Right. Right. And those that are in our lives. So it's mm. it's the choice points that we live. It's when we take action in the world. What do we you know? What do we vote for? What do we put our money on? What are we what are we espousing in the world? And and to what degree are we able to actually live the things we espouse? And you know, for me, that's always been an interesting challenge and even an interesting dilemma because I recognize that you know, like you're talking about earlier, living being a good person or living a good life. It's, I don't believe any of us is really a saint in the, in the sense that we would only do good things in the world. I mean, even Buddha and, and Jesus 
made mistakes, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> um, maybe, well, yeah. well, before. well, for my frame of reference. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> it's probably blasphemous for some other people. But, you know, I mean, I think if we hold up this ideal of perfection, then I think we're, you know, we, we only befuddle ourselves. Right. No, I like so that. So for me, it's about yeah. walking the landscape of the soul is walking honestly you know, is feeling our feet on the earth and knowing that we're taking this step. We're putting our foot here. And if we step in crap, mm-hmm. you know, it's we, we can blame the world for it, for having that in front of us, you know, and for slipping it under our foot. But we still got to clean it off. True. <laughs> Ourselves, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm. So it's kind of like that. Walking the landscape of the soul is the how we live our life not the grandeur of our life or whether we do amazing things or whether we change the world. It's the how we live our life. I like that. You you mentioned that it takes self-awareness and I'm I'm wondering what is the difference between self-awareness, consciousness and emotional intelligence? Mm, yeah. Well, consciousness could cover, you know, any conscious sentience that's you know in the universe including all other beings and um you know and whatever sentience is woven into the fabric of the universe and then self-awareness would be when my piece of consciousness is aware of myself as a separate being and and that's self-awareness so consciousness self-awareness and what was the third Uh, emotional intelligence yeah so an emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. to me that's that's kind of a, a subset of awareness. It's mm. an awareness of, of our emotional response to the world, which is the evaluative part of ourselves. Emotions are evaluative. They determine whether we like or don't like something, whether we feel something is good or bad. It's our evaluative process and being able to use our evaluative process wisely, which means you know it's so easy in life because we don't like something or something feels negative to us to start to judge it and label it negatively. And I think emotional intelligence is recognizing that's an emotion that you have that's evaluating something, Mm. but it doesn't necessarily determine its worth. Right. It's actual is something beyond our judgment. Wow. I like that. For us, it can be a personal question, but when we start putting it on the world, I think that's when we get into trouble. Not that we shouldn't do that. I mean, like, is murder bad? Murder is generally bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So it's not that we don't ever do that. It's just that we're respectful when we do, that we're making a choice about something, and it has consequences. And I think that's what emotional intelligence is really about, recognizing our evaluations of things are choices, and they have consequences. Right. How do you um, respond when you have this emotional experience toward something and you have perceived as negative? Do you re, uh, respond with an, an action that it's also negative to yourself and others? Or you find the best way to understand what's happening and try to respond in a positive way regardless? Yeah, you know, I think... <clears throat> Well, there's my personal kind of way of handling that, and you know, which I could talk about. But I think there's a a way in which we have to recognize the power of emotion because emotions can be very powerful, and we can get swept up in them. That's one reason why I think it's sometimes crazy to have 
you know, an opportunity for people to have guns when they're angry. Like, because emotions sometimes get, I mean, they can get good people to do crazy things. And so for me, it's, I think there's two parts to answering that question. One is, how can we be in relationship to our emotions and not be overwhelmed and swept up by it mm. and carried somewhere? Yeah. Or, or if we, if we are to, to know that that's happening and be willing to go along with, it. I mean, ecstasy and, you know, love making and things like that, where you want to be swept up and you choose to be swept up are beautiful. Um, but being able to, to have some ability to monitor that and not let your emotions run you. You know, what I really love is I love when you see a child, you know, like a little girl or a little kid who's fed up with something and they stomp their foot and they say no. Mm-hmm. And I love to watch that when they do that in front of five or six adults standing around them who are literally two to three times their size. I always look at that and I think, man, is that an incredible act of courage? You know, and you watch children, children at some point along the way, most children will learn to have an emotion and not act on it. Because if they don't, they will never make it successfully <laughs> in the world. Uh, so <laughs> They're going to live a pretty limited life. <laughs> so for me, I think there's that. The first question is having the emotion and being able to sort of be in relationship to the emotion without having it take you over and take away your choice. Mm. And then the second thing is, deciding how we respond to it. So for me, the first step in negative emotions is welcoming them rather than trying to shun them or or put them away. It's like, you know, something needs to, in the NLP field, Robert Dills is one of the leaders in NLP, has this great phrase, and that is, something needs to be heard, healed, or held. Mm. Heard, healed, or held. And it's, it's, you know, it's like something negative comes into our world you know, maybe the first step is welcoming it rather than beating it off or, or shunning it or trying to get rid of it or you know, trying to stop it from happening. Um, and then once we welcome it, a lot of times we can find the gift in it. You know, it's like no, knowing, knowing which things in the garden are actually beneficial weeds rather than just pulling up everything that comes up. I agree. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I like the idea of um, trying to understand emotions before yeah responding mm-hmm. to them to see the wisdom right. because emotions like you said they are trying to tell us something and it's important to understand yeah. them right yeah yeah i think every emotion actually has a message like frustration is telling you you're either wanting the goal too soon or you're trying the wrong ways to get it or you need to reevaluate the goal every emotion has a message and it's like learning to get the message rather than killing the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I never heard it that way. I like that too. <laughs> um, talk to me about the map of the archetypal journey, which is a map for living as a spirit in the world. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting kind of way I have of organizing what I believe are the perennial questions that we have to address as we're walking on the planet here as human beings. And, um, you know, there's lots of work that's been done on archetypes from, you know, Jung to Joseph Campbell and others. Joseph Campbell wrote The Hero's Journey. And The Hero's Journey is one map of a kind of archetypal journey. Um, I was feeling, as I was doing my work over the years, uh, beginning to recognize that the hero's journey is only one version or one way of of living an archetypal life. And for me, the type of archetypal life you live depends on how you address 
four what turns out to be in four quadrants that are based on two intersecting axes. So there's the you know the vertical axis which has the outer world and the inner world in it. So outer world, top, inner world at the bottom, and then the horizontal axis which has the known or conscious and on the left and the unknown or conscious on the right. And then that creates four quadrants. And each one of those has a philosophical and a poetic question attached to it. Um, the center is what I call the sanctuary. So for me to walk soulfully on the planet and to live your best self on the planet, you need to have a deep connection with yourself. Mm. But always the first step in the journey through life and dealing with challenges and issues is to have a good, solid source you can return to in yourself, a place you can go to that you can restore your, you know, your, your vitality, renew yourself, ponder things, get answers, etc., to, to questions and determine how to live. And then from there, you go to each of these quadrants. And I can just kind of quickly go over those four quadrants. So one of the, the, the um, known inner world is, is yourself. The philosophical question would be, the poetic question is, how wide is your embrace of yourself in your life? And the resource is love and acceptance. The unknown inner world is, um, a philosophical question is, what is your source? Where do you come from? And the poetic question is, how deep is your taproot of trust in life? Because it's really about trust and faith in the greater forces and in life and in yourself to be able to sort of be okay in the world no matter what happens. And then in the outer world, the philosophical question is, what's, what matters? What's important? Um, and the poetic question is, is your horizon big enough to hold your dreams? This is about discernment and about clarity. It's about your ability to Find those limiting beliefs and ideas, the layers we've gotten from society that we talked about earlier, and unlearning them, undoing them, and in creating empowering beliefs. And then the last quadrant is um, the philosophical question is, why are you here? And the poetic question is, how far are you willing to extend the reach of your heart into the world or into life? And it's about courage and resilience. And so for me, Navigating life is about returning to those questions because we're going to answer them differently. And as we answer and explore one area, it opens up the other. So as we begin to extend the reach of our heart out into the world, we may have to deepen our trust in life. We may have to expand our horizons so more is possible for us. We may have to be willing to embrace our mistakes, our flaws with greater grace. Um, so you work in one area and it starts to open up the others. And so it becomes, it, it's like a spiral as you grow in life and expand each area, you expand the possibilities in the other areas as well. So it's a map in the sense that it helps us to know what area we're working on and what other areas can support that and make a kind of uh, inner negotiation to do that. My next book actually is called The Undiscovered Country, How to Live in Your Own Heartland. And it's all based on that. It's about to be released probably in the next um, two months. Wow. I love that, though. I know it's a method. There are many methods out there. I love, absolutely love the way you describe it, the way you have it visually. It's just uh, incredibly helpful and clear. It's so clear. It makes so much sense to me. You talked about Thank destiny you. and fate. And I'm wondering, how do we know when we are living mm -hmm. our destiny? And is there a difference really between destiny and fate? What about purpose and karma? 
Wow, you like to throw a whole bunch in there. <laughs> right, right. You know what I noticed, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was reading recently a little bit about this, and I don't remember the source now. It was on the internet. It might have just been, you know, looking up the word fate. But I remember seeing, and, and I thought this was a good description. Fate is, is the life you live if you don't do anything other than go with, you know, with the, you go along with the flow. You're in, you're in a faded life then. You know, there are lots of things that are happening in our culture and in our world happening, say, in New York. I think that's where you are, or in California, where I am. You know, in my com- community, there's both natural and, and, and human events happening that, that we can be carried along by that. Um, so that would be fate. Destiny is when you start to choose your future and you start to create a future according to what you believe is your best life or what you believe is is a worthy endeavor in the world you know and then you're 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 rising to fate's challenge so to speak and beginning to choose a path um and and i think for me that that comes down to connecting with the heart so you know carlos castaneda one of the most uh, amazing writers of the 60s 70s wrote a series of books and uh, with where he was tutored by Don Juan, a Toltec uh, um, shaman. And Don Juan talked about walking a path with heart. And that, to me, is the essence of, of um, the sort of the journey of whether you call it fate or desti- destiny or whatever the path that we're on is, is it a path with heart? Living a fated life is not a bad thing, actually, at all. I mean, just like living a duty. Some people in America, we're a rights-oriented country, not a duty-oriented country. And we don't like to have to do things or believe we have to do things. But, you know, there can be a beauty in living a role that you live to fulfill for another. And that can be, if you embrace it and you live that fully, it can be a magnificent and wonderful life. On the other hand, if you don't embrace it and you're fighting against it, it can be a miserable life. Just like you could have this idea that you have to live your own unique life. You can't live according to others. And you could be miserable trying to make that happen. Well, you could be happy fulfilling some duties in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes we parse the world too much. <laughs> That's true. Recognizing there's a lot of middle ground in there. <laughs> yeah, true, Nick. Wow. What would be the measurement? Um, how do we know for sure that we are living the destiny? Let's say a life that is connected with the heart. Uh, regardless of the situation, really, like you just said, it could be a fate kind of life. But um, if we are helping lots of people, then it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think that's why it's so important to have that center that I mentioned in the map of the archetypal journey, to have that deep connection with yourself where you can go back and revisit and redetermine whether you're on the right path or not. Um, or whether this is true to you or not. You know, and I, I wrote a poem a while back that, you know, was a recognition that what I thought had been a path with heart for me had actually become the image in my mind was a dry creek bed. So it was easy to walk this dry creek bed, but it would, would no longer have the flowing river through it. And for me, I think it's, it's that metaphorically, that's kind of the image is that if I can go to myself and feel like, yes, I'm in the river, I'm in the river, then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living at least closer to that place. Yeah. In fact, I wrote a poem called, called The River that's kind of about that idea. And I could, I'd be happy to share any poem if you'd like as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. 
Would you like to hear it? The river? Yeah, yeah. I, I just that. wrote that this year. I was actually at a, a leadership group meeting, an NLP leadership group meeting in Alicante, Spain. And there was one kind of tense moment. I mean, there are a lot of people who have different opinions and ideas. And there was a little tense moment working through that there. And and after that, I wrote this this poem called The River, partly because I wanted to express something about what we can do as a group that's greater than what we can do as an individual, but also recognizing that you know, we as individuals are are still the, you know, like the, the, the significant part of a group, each individual. So I wrote this poem called The River. If our hearts were not bottomless, how could we ever hold the river of love? If our spirits were not light, how could we ever see the grace in our faults? For we will trample over each other in our blind pursuit of desire or in the foolish march of our lives. Only sacred space can hold these threads together or heal the rift in our failure at worldly love. But what we can do with a purity of intent, if we put our willing hearts together, is nothing less than astonishing. I, for one, want to be a part of something beautiful. And if we stumble and fall in the growing of our wings, it is only because we are human and we are still learning how to see each other across the great divide. This much I know for sure. The river is wide enough and great enough to carry us to some destination we have yet to conceive and that can lift us all beyond our wildest imagination. Wow. Beautiful. Truly beautiful. Yeah, that's, I think, what happens when we, you know, when we step into that place where we're, we're following what you might call our destiny, right. is step into that river, that river of love. Yeah, so that makes me think about the word you used earlier connected to love, acceptance, because it could be a way of knowing that we are living the destiny when we have that inner peace, this deep understanding and acceptance for what life is in whatever it's happening in this moment. So it kind of, it made me think about that. And then you um, talk about the river, right, the flow. You know, I, I, maybe one last comment on that one too, is that, you know, I think it's interesting because I always like to hold, like how can something be held in the largest frame possible? You know, and there's a kind of place where, and, and I think you might agree with this, in the, where we have acceptance of resistance. You know, where there's a part of us that resists. And sometimes, like I was talking about earlier, we may need to stand up against a movement in the world or stand up against an abuse in the world or stand up against something that we believe is wrong. Right. And we're we're coming to that with a frame of resistance or a frame of negation, I guess you could mm, say. Right. And I think of the larger frame of being a human on the planet, that, uh, that that kind of stand is necessary. And sometimes we even have to take that stand against ourselves. You know, mm. you know, to go against ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. Da- David that. White, the poet, uses that. He, you know, he, he talks about a moment he had with another poet, John O'Donoghue. And, and uh, John O'Donoghue was saying to him, you know, go against yourself about how much money he should give his dad. He wanted him to give his dad more money. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that yeah. phrase, I love that phrase because I think sometimes we have patterns. We have mm. tendencies. And even sometimes what might be a high notion, a good, you know, beautiful notion in the world, we might need to go against it in a moment. 
Oh yeah. And yeah. so for me, it's, it's, I think this idea of acceptance is it's part of a larger frame that includes in it sometimes resisting and sometimes standing up against things. Yeah. It's like when we say yes, what are we saying no to? And when mm. we say no, what are we saying yes to? Wow. That makes me think about conditionings and how programmed, like you, you talked earlier about the process of knowing ourselves is, has to do with unlearning. At some point, it's kind of even difficult, challenging to know when we are following our intuition uh -huh. or conditions, uh, conditionings or our beliefs. Yeah, just this morning, I wrote a poem. I'm just going to share a couple of little well, stanzas from it. I wrote a poem called Broken Things. If you live deeply, all the broken things in your life will come begging to be mended. They will make you believe love can never come until you nurse them all back to health. It is impossible, and you know it, because some things cannot be made new again, but love is too precious to give up on it. So you try clean living, hot yoga, silent retreats, you go vegan and volunteer at the local co-op, wondering how much good you must do to turn the karmic will and be blessed. These surface feedings never quell the hunger. But if you live deeply with all the broken things in your life that come begging to be mended, you may one day cross the impossible bridge. You give up on the spotless cleaning, forfeit the scale of shiny new perfection, and you give your all to caring for this life, healed and unhealed, broken and whole. You break the rule of conditional love by making love your condition. Everything that you have been waiting to come to you then comes from you. You wake up as a guest in the house of love and realize you have always been welcome there. Mm. Wow. I love your poetry. <laughs> I know the one you, we talked on the phone and, and you read to me the um, self-love poem. Yeah, I met someone. I poem. met someone, right. Wow, that was amazing too. Profound and um yeah, for some reason, as you can recall, I got emotional, maybe because self-love is something that I, I have not practiced uh, for many years, for most of my life, really. So that, it's interesting how it's still somehow, uh, like you said, the broken parts uh, in us, um, something that's still broken, but it's very much asking to be healed, right, to be mended. So speaking of self-love, <laughs> let me ask you some questions. What is self-love to you? And what is the difference between selfishness, self-care, and self-love? Well, first of all, in order to love yourself, you need to recognize your inner relationship with yourself. And I think this is a big mistake a lot of us make in our, in our lives is that we don't recognize that the conscious mind, our, you know, our awareness and our strategic mind, our thinking mind is only a small part of who we are, a tiny part actually by uh, scientific research, but less than 5% of our functioning is, is, is conscious. Um, so we're in relationship with a greater presence already. And that greater presence, I would call self with a capital S. So for me, it's like, how does the little S self relate to the big S self. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and so and that's where self-love comes in. Because so often we berate and we, most of us have become masters at abusing ourselves. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we do something wrong and we, we treat ourselves in ways we'd never treat friends. Right. You know, we're, we're, we're violent with ourselves, literally violent with ourselves um, and abusive with ourselves. So for me, I think the main, main goal of self-love is to enter into a relationship that recognizes, first of all, there is a relationship. Yourself is something beyond your conscious mind. Secondly, bringing a, a quality in that relationship of care a quality of love. So self-care as part of that. And you know, the poem that I shared with you in, in our phone call, the I met someone came about from me. I was pouring a glass of water for myself. And as I was pouring the glass of water, I recalled a, a love I had when I was, you know, when, you know, first love I had when I was young. And I had this moment where I was making, I think it was a cup of tea actually at the time I was making this tea for her. And I felt this incredible sense of this loving act you know, that this was it kind of held the whole relationship in the moment. And I wanted to give it to her as if I was giving my heart. <laughs> and I had this memory and I thought, I'm taking care of myself in this small act. I'm taking care of myself. And this precious feeling came with it. And it, and it opened the door for me to recognize all the little things that I do mm -hmm. to take care of myself. I think self-care is when you put care into the actions that you do to take care of yourself, that you do them willingly rather than brushing your teeth and thinking about, you know, the argument that you had with a friend or, you know, washing your face while you're trying mm -hmm. to figure out your laundry list of things to do. You actually do it with care. Mm -hmm. you, know, you do it as a caring act. So self-care is a way of expressing self-love. Yeah. And uh, selfishness Selfishness is when you put yourself on a pedestal and put yourself above others. Selfishness is when you make you the center of the world rather than recognizing that you're not the center of the world. And I think the biggest, perhaps spiritual leap that we have to make as individuals is recognizing we're not the center of our own lives. Myself is not the center of my life. That there's a greater, just like the sun is the center of our solar system and the earth circles around it. You know, there's a greater center that I orbit, so to speak, that my awareness orbits. And how do I begin to shift my life so that it's centered in a greater presence than this conscious part, which is only a small part of the equation. So selfishness is when we forget that and we get caught up that in, in uh, you know, sort of what serves, what's self-serving according to the, what you might call the ego mind. Yeah, that makes so much sense, right? I love the way you talked about self-care as being part of self-love. So that comes from self-love. I think that some people confuse self-care with self-love, and that's not exactly the same. Yeah. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? Well, you know, I think it's the condition of being human limits us. So I don't know that we could ever be unconditional. <laughs> mm. We are a condition. So that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I was talking about. So if we can make our condition love, that's the closest we can get to unconditional love. Yeah. I like that. And, yeah. Mm. So, you know, it's like mm. rather than striving to make, to, to achieve this thing called unconditional love, which means I'd have never have any judgments or whatever that means. <laughs> um, you know, uh, that, that I just want to make as much as possible myself a condition of love. And so for years, I've been 
as a goal, I've had the goal of being love, not just being in love or being loving or feeling loved, which are all aspects of it. But like, what happens if you be love? I, wow. Yeah, in a way, the same way of being life. You just, life itself. There's no separation, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, right. I like that. Um, the way I understand unconditional love, it's perhaps the same way you described about uh, loving the conditions or conditionings. Unconditional love, in a way, you make a mistake and then, uh, yeah, you, you could judge. That's okay. You know, the feelings, the emotions, they, they are welcome too, all kinds. But then um, you understand them. You kind of understand yourself, everything, the mistakes you make, and it doesn't take too long. <laughs> and you don't torture yourself, abuse yourself, or go crazy over it. You just uh, understand it and, and treat yourself with kindness. And I believe that might be part of unconditional love, of self-love. It's funny, as you were just saying that, I was thinking of understand. You know, it's like you take understand. It has, it has a kind of humbling quality to it. You know, like under means that you, you lower yourself in relationship to a greater idea, a greater thinking, a greater frame. True. Yeah. Right. You so just I thought about this now? How cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. I love that word, understanding, right? Understand something. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, because everything's life. Might be what is to be spiritual, really. Um, yeah to flow with that all, with, with judgment even if it happens, but um, you're still kind. I always go back to that word, kindness, right? Yeah, I love it, human kindness. And, and I think this whole idea of humbling, like for me, when I enter into a genuine relationship with life, I am humbled, inevitably humbled. You know, if I see an incredible sunset and it's, you know, the glorious colors spread across the sky i'm humbled by that you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I you know i see something on the news there's a tragedy in some area and the community comes together and they start to find this renewal of spirit in each other and they rebuild i'm humbled by that and to me i think this humbling experience this understanding <laughs> mm, wow i love that is, nick it is the doorway to to being a spirit in the world right yeah right the way you yeah, the way you say, because that's what your work is about, being a spirit in the world, right? Beautiful. Would you like to say anything before I ask you my final, final questions? <laughs> well, I'd, be, I'd love to share the poem, I Met Someone, the one I shared with you on the phone, since it is about Yeah, so okay, you're going to make me cry again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and as I mentioned, I wrote this poem after pouring this cup of water for myself, and then I began to realize all these little acts of of care that could be done with this feeling of love. And this poem came out of that. It's called, I Met Someone. Today, I fell in love with the act of filling my water jug as if it was a caring watershed. And I wanted to put every joy into cutting vegetables because they nourish me. To fold all of my affection into my clothes because they caress me to infuse endless delight in tidying the house because it wants to indulge me. Now I am delirious, as if I found the lost city of gold after stumbling around in the jungle all my life. 
I'm not really dancing, but the moves are audible. On the surface, it's just one of those sly, starry-eyed smiles. If you ask me what I am doing that makes me so happy, I will tell you, I finally met someone to love. Mm. Wow. You know, and I think if you think <sighs> about it, if you met, came to yourself as someone you, you're here to love, you know, then, then if you made yourself the love of your life, and that sounds, this sounds, I know, crazy, and some people would say <laughs> it's foolish, but I believe it's actually, ultimately, the greatest love you can, you can give. Once you come from that place, you can do amazing things. I agree. Well, Ruiz, who's the author of Four Agreements, and his, has two sons that are carrying on his work. Um, one of them is Don Jose. Um, has uh, talks a lot about this idea of making yourself the love of your life, and I love the the, the concept of it. Yeah, it makes so much sense to the heart. Yeah, mm-hmm. I almost cried again. So that's interesting. How touched that part of us that is, that we can say know the truth. Yeah, it knows. Right. Beautiful work. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, it's long longing to be loved. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure to be here. And, and thank you for your work and what you're doing, which is wonderful. And, um, and hopefully we'll have more conversations in the future. Oh, yes. Yeah, that'll be great. I'll be asking you a few questions. Let me see about four or five of them. Um, you can give me short answers or not. Doesn't really matter. Uh, how do you define success? What is to be successful? Successful is living your heart in the world is living from your heart in, in life. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? Um, but I'm not stupid. Yeah. When I was young, just a quick note on that. When I was young, uh, my father, my father's way of showing affection was to put you down. And I was a sensitive kid. So he would say something that, you know, was cute in his mind, but I would just cry. <laughs> and, uh, and the one phrase he used a lot was, you've got one gear and it's slow. And I remember this kind of this feeling in life that I was slow, I was stupid, I was, you know, behind. And, and I, you know, I had a bunch of other reasons probably for thinking that too. But I, that's I've been the biggest challenge for me to overcome, that I'm not stupid. That's great. No doubt about that. <laughs> if you knew you would die soon, in the sense of losing the body, would you make any change in your life? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm sure that I would. Um, I think I would stop fretting over things. Um, I mean, there are some things I think I fret over that are totally unimportant or needless to fret over in terms of actual actions i think i would do a lot of reaching out to everybody that i knew to say something or do something or offer something to them that's what i would do i would reach out Mm. beautiful do you believe in life after death yeah i i you know i i don't know whether there actually is or not from a cognitive standpoint Certainly, I, I feel that in my, you know, my sort of spiritual bones that we go on. Um, but, you know, even if it's just a fantasy and this is the only life we have, then um, that's, that's okay, too. I think 
either way, I mean, if, if I put off to the afterlife things that my heart desires here or that are important in this life, then I think it's a, it's a, um, a distraction. But if I see it as this enduring essence that goes on, then it, it becomes an invitation. And in a way, they're they're like I like I was talking about earlier. My I'm borrowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe the essence of me actually isn't inside of me. It's out there in the universe, and I'm just a little download <laughs> <laughs> for these what seventy five, eighty five, ninety five, one hundred ten, twenty mm. years, whatever it is I have on the planet. I'm just a download for the time being. <laughs> wow, what an <laughs> getting, imagination! Getting regular, getting regular updates, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, but sounds it resonates true, actually. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Lipton, Bruce Lipton's work is about that. Uh, the beyond what is it? Uh, the the uh, the biology of belief. Bruce Lipton. He talks about that that we might actually be a resonance with a with an essence of us that's actually external to us. In other words, our identity is not inside of us. We're resonating an identity that's present in the universe. What are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? That I'm here, that life is a continuous flow, and that beauty is the mark of creation. Mm. Right. It has been a great conversation, warm, meaningful, wise. Thank you so much, Nick. Oh, well, thank you so much. And you mentioned, you know, starting with some warm-up questions. I think they were warming up all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Warming that's... us all the way through. <laughs> that's cute. Uh, well, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I, I'm so happy that, you, uh, that we had this opportunity to chat together. I know. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, uh, service, products, and future projects? Yeah, my books are available on Amazon.com, so you can look under my name. I have uh, eight books of poetry there and a few other books of nonfiction, one on coaching and uh, one on um, the feeling of experience of owing or being owed in life. And then there's my website, which is my name, www.nicklaforce.com. And then I'm also on Facebook under my name and, also, and under Transformational Poet, so you can find me in those places. And, I, you know, I'm available. I do coaching and uh, do training and speaking. So if people are interested in anything that I have to offer, I'd love to chat with them. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Nick. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Valeria. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Nick LaForce, please visit his website, nicklaforce.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>